0: back to a new year of Medically Speaking. This is our first show for 2016 and I want to thank you for joining us again. We will um, entertain your questions so we're happy to take calls. I want to make sure I throw that number out there. I've been bad about that in the past so I want to make sure we throw that out right away 203-757-1320 for any calls um, that you may have. We are going to start out the new year with a really important topic and I have with me tonight our chairman of the Stanley Dudrick Department of Surgery at St. Mary's Hospital, Dr. Philip Corvo. Dr. Corvo, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much you for, for joining having,
1: me. Thank you for having me back, Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year, and thank you so much for being our first speaker of the year. I'm honored. You're honored. I'm honored, because your schedule is incredibly busy, so it's great that you could join us. How long have you been with the hospital now? It's been a while.
1: Uh, two and a half years.
0: Two and a half years. Two and a half years. So I'm only Just back a year longer. and a half, so you are only there a year before I came back. That's it. It seems like you've been there forever, though, and the changes that you've brought to our hospital have been immense. Thank you. So Thank you very we much. are just so lucky, so lucky to have you. Where did you come from prior to that? Just to let our audience know where you herald from.
1: Sure. For the fifteen years before that, I was at Stanford Hospital. Lived in Stanford for five years before that. Did my residency training also in Stanford. So you're a Connecticut boy. I'm a Brooklyn boy. You're
0: a Brooklyn. Well, I, kind of. So you're on that line. I'm on that line. You're on that line. So family's not too far. Now, Connecticut Connecticut Park. Park. now you're a Connecticut I've been
1: here Park. more than I was in New York.
0: Yeah, you don't ha- I don't think that you're entertaining that Brooklyn accent.
1: I worked very hard to get rid of that Brooklyn accent.
0: <laughs> you worked really hard to get rid of that. What we'd like to do for the beginning of, of our talks here for Medically Speaking is talk about a really important subject. And it's, it has a lot to do with patient safety. And we will be referring to a couple of articles that were recently in the Hartford Current along with uh, the Wadbury Republican. But I want to make a few quotes from that I pulled today because I think they're very, very telling of what we're doing here in the Connecticut market for patient safety Mm -hmm. and quality. The uh, Connecticut Hospital Association and Connecticut Hospital Association put out there that ensuring patient safety and the highest quality of care is a daily mission of our Connecticut hospitals and St. Mary's Hospital Is definitely a partner and a player in patient safety, and we are one of the Connecticut hospitals that are amongst the nation's best. And aided by the willingness to share information about patient safety and quality is part of one of our biggest initiatives. When it comes to making healthcare decisions, it's important for patients to understand they need to have useful information from reliable sources. And Connecticut Hospital Association definitely provides us with a reliable source for us to be able to get that information. And as we were saying, Connecticut Hospital, um, the Connecticut hospitals have a long standing commitment to measuring and publicly reporting hospital quality and safety information. As a matter of fact, Connecticut was the first in the state, first state, I'm sorry, in the nation to have 100% of its hospitals reporting quality data to CMS. And I think that's really important for our audience to know that. St. Mary's Hospital being one of the Connecticut hospitals, we're part of that mission. And along with the Connecticut Hospital Association, we have made it a priority to instill patient safety and quality. I know when I came to St. Mary's just a year and a half ago, we had a full program on high reliability, which we will talk about in a few minutes. But our patient safety and quality is of the utmost importance to us. And bringing us to something that was put out in the Uh, the Hartford Current, and then subsequently into um, the Republican American, it talked about 18 Connecticut hospitals being penalized for high infection rates, and we were among those hospitals that they reported on. So we want to bring that up today. We want to be transparent. We want to talk about what that information means, and we also want the audience to know what we're doing and what we've done over the last two years as a hospital to improve our patient safety and quality. So I'm going to turn that over to you.
1: Thank you. Um, Too bad we only have an hour to talk because covering all of that is is going to take several hours, but I'll I'll see what we can do. Um, I'd like to start out with what you had mentioned before about high reliability. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea behind high reliability training is to look at other industries. Usually people talk about the military To make sure that you're doing things as efficient and reliable and safe as you possibly can. So, if you've ever watched a a movie where there's a military um, action going on, someone will give a direction, and then the person who's received the direction will repeat it. Mm -hmm. And then the person who said the direction in the first place will confirm it and repeat it back. It's, it's It's a triple... Uh, confirmation, and it seems like it is over-redundant and almost would slow things down, but the reality is that what they're doing on a nuclear aircraft carrier, on a space mission, in an operating room, um, is so delicate and so important that no matter what, you can't be too careful to make sure that things happen. So, these other industries have had such great safety records um, that the medical industry several years ago... Honestly, we took a little bit too long to sort of get up to speed, um, started to mimic this. Mm -hmm. So, Connecticut, as a state, through the Connecticut Hospital Association, uh, started a high reliability training program for all the hospitals in the state. And one of the basic tenets of being a high reliable organization is to be incredibly transparent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the reason for that is. If you, if you don't realize that something's wrong, there is absolutely no way you're going to fix it. Right. And when you are admitting your faults to your competition, it, it sort of brings out a whole different layer of transparency and, and ownership of the problems, um, and then pride when you've managed to fix the problem. Absolutely. So, so picture the hospitals that are in the state day-to-day basis, they are in competition with each other, some in, some in very literally cutthroat competition with each other. And then we have these meetings, we are all in the same room at the same time to help each other out.
0: Because it's really about the patient. At the end of the day, it's about the patient.
1: It is always all about It's all about, all about the, patient. the patient.
0: Yes. So it's so important for us to work as a team, within the state of and I'm so proud of the state of Connecticut to be the first in the nation to have 100% reportability on this. Yes. And and we're one of those hospitals. So it's important to understand those numbers and you know I definitely want to go down the line mm-hmm. of discussing what we do as a hospital on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. with our meetings and what's discussed and what's presented because I think that's really important yes. to understand now mm-hmm. that I'm part of those meetings and I'm very proud to be part of those meetings to understand every day what's happening and what we do every day to fix the problem because yes. we're not infallible but we definitely are the, one of the safest Absolutely. in the area. So when we talk about what was reported
2: mm-hmm.
0: they reported numbers about rates mm-hmm. rates of infection mm-hmm. that have gone up but they're general rates of infection. You know, one of one of the things they talk about is the infection rates um, for complications such as pressure sores, post operative blood clots and other fed, other other reportable data mm-hmm. to the federal government. When we look at those numbers and it looks we look at those numbers, are those true numbers or are those older numbers when they report that out? Because this right. this is a very dated sure material and so it makes it Yes. It can be misconceived.
1: It, it can be. Um, so, the answer, the high reliable, direct answer to your question is mm. yes, they're true numbers, and yes, they're old numbers. Um, and now it also gets a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, Mark Twain once said that there are three kinds of lies there are lies there are damned lies, (laughs) and there's statistics. And what we're dealing with here is statistics. So, a very interesting thing happened several years ago uh, when Connecticut started to formalize this high-reliability grouping. Uh, And when we started reporting our data, and we did it as a whole state, and we were being compared to other states that were not reporting all of their data we very very quickly looked worse than the other states
0: because they weren't 100 percent.
1: because they weren't reporting at 100 percent. so automatically our raw numbers are higher than theirs right um but if you look at the percentages we are the same and frequently we are better um In terms of the the exact data that's in the article that you're talking about, it is it it is old data, uh, and a lot of people will sort of further complain on top of that that it's something we called claims data. So you can imagine that the insurance companies that are paying for healthcare want to know what kind of a job we're doing, and at some point they need to have a snapshot of a patient's experience when they're in the hospital. Trying to take that snapshot when the patient is still in the hospital doesn't help them at all. So what they do is they wait for the patient to leave the hospital, and they look at what we call discharge data. The The problem with that is what the patient came in with and what they leave with isn't always exactly the same thing. You need to understand what happened in the transition. So the, the data that gets reported in these papers is accurate, but it's also sort of self-limiting, mm. and it's it's not a fault of the hospitals, it's not a fault of the reporting agencies, it's more of a fault of the way we we have to look at the data when you're looking at, at large numbers like that. In addition to that, the data is old. Um, I believe it was like 2012 is when to we- To 13. To 13. Right. Um, and you can imagine that each That's hospital- That's two to three years old now. Exactly. And, and in our world, that is, that is a lifetime. Right. You can imagine that- you know, two or three years ago, each hospital knew what their own data looked like, and if a hospital didn't like what their data looked like, right. they had the opportunity to do something about it to change it. Knowing what our data was like then, we were we were okay. St. Mary's was actually okay, but okay is not good enough when you are a high reliable organization. So we put uh, several new programs into place, um, and significantly reduced our infection rates, our blood clot rates, our uh, bed sore rates, our pneumonia rates. Two, three years from now, you'll be able to read about those better results in the newspaper.
0: As you look at those results. We we were talking about this the other day. How, How many surgeries do we do in totality, and then our, re, our relationship to the ratio of infection.
1: We do we do about seventeen thousand procedures a year between St. Mary's and the Naugatuck Valley Surgery the Center. The Surgery Center. Right? Um, and when you talk about the the numbers of infections, we're we're talking maybe forty or fifty a year. By itself, it sounds like a lot, but when you make the percentage out, that's a really really good percentage. Absolutely when you compare what we were like several years ago to now uh, we've been able to make significant drops in our uh, operative infection rate two years ago to one year ago we had a 60 percent drop and in the last year we had another 53 percent drop on top of that so if you if you sort of play out with the math our current infection rate is about a third of what it was reported in the original hartford current article right uh, and In the meantime, we've learned some new things that we have implemented. So I have to think that our next infection rate will be even lower. Uh, I'm really shooting to have the single best infection rate in the country.
0: I'm so happy to hear that those are old numbers, which I I already knew they were. But to understand it and to be able to let the audience understand that better, because I don't think that you look at the years. I think you just look at that number Mm -hmm. and you look that our area hospital is part of that. And say, why are their numbers going up? They protest themselves to be a high reliability hospital, Mm. but Transparency is best, as we've just said. It's really important to understand what those numbers were, which is one of the reasons why we wanted to come here tonight Mm -hmm. and talk about what those two articles meant Mm -hmm. last month. And how we've addressed the change before it was even made public. And what we've done over the past two years and how our numbers really actually look, which you just attested to, that our rate is, is practically less than 1%. Yes. Now, when we look at some of the measures that we took, let's look at a typical surgical procedure mm-hmm. and what happens from start to finish with that patient. So if we have a patient that's coming in from home, mm-hmm. scheduled for a surgery, what happens prior to the patient even getting there that starts that
1: process for us? Sure. Um, let's Let's talk about a typical colon surgery patient because out of all the patients that we operate on, the colon patients... Uh, Have the highest chances for getting an infection because we are literally operating on their intestines, Intestines, their colon, and and I think everybody knows what ultimately comes out of your intestine. Absolutely. So that's that's where the infection. They're considered uh, a dirty
0: procedure. It's 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 an area that tends to get the most infection rate for sure.
1: It is as dirty as literally your septic tank is. Yes. Yeah. Um, So. When, when someone needs a colon, uh, a colon surgery, they usually start out with you know some sort of complaint that gets their, their doctor's attention. Um, the medical doctor may send them to a gastroenterologist who does a colonoscopy, uh, where, where a telescope is inserted into their rectum and the whole colon is looked at. Uh, if a problem is identified that needs surgery, then the patient should go to see a surgeon. Mm-hmm. Once they go to the surgeon, um, we do a history, we do a physical, we look at any kind of uh, findings of any tests that may have been done at that point, and if we think we need other tests to help us plan our procedure, we order those tests also. Assuming that after all that we decide that the patient needs to go to the operating room, we need to get them ready for the operating room. Um, in the old days, we used to call that clearing them for surgery, Right. Um, but that has a, an odd connotation. It almost sounds like you know, you're know you cleared for takeoff, everything right. is going to be fine, right. and we, we all know that no matter how good of a situation we can create before the operating room, there's, there's factors that we can't identify, or more importantly, and more worrisome, and probably more commonly, Factors that we can identify that we cannot fix. Can't change. Can't change. Um, So, for somebody who's overweight, somebody who's a diabetic, somebody who's a smoker, those are factors that that patient brings to the operating room that we really can't change too much. Um, The things that we can change, we try to address beforehand. So, when we talk about these factors, we're talking about risk factors. Mm -hmm. So now, before we have to do a big surgery on someone, we have them usually see their regular doctor again, so that they can risk stratify the patient. We will literally look at a list of all the possible risks that that patient has associated with them. and If there are things that we can address before the surgery, we address them. If there are things that we can't address, uh, you've been smoking for 40 years, it's great that you stopped a year ago, but we we can't make that any better at this point. Um, We try to do extra things to make up for that. Maybe if you were a smoker, even if you don't have asthma right now, we would give you some Preparation, asthma medication right. to, to sort of you know make things better for, for the surgery. Once we have someone risk stratified, we uh, book them for the operating room, and now we prepare them for the operating room. If it is a colon surgery, you can imagine that nobody wants to be operating on a on a colon, on a large piece of intestine that's that's full of stool. Full. So very frequently, we will have people drink a, a solution. Most of them taste a little bit like. Flavored salt water, right. seawater, um, and it, it cleans you out. Cleans, yep. Not only is the stool coming out, but also a lot of the bacteria. Bacteria, and that that's the important thing for us. Mm-hmm. Um, then, in addition to that, we know that there are certain antibiotics we can give to people to help reduce the infection, the uh, the bacterial load even even further. Mm-hmm. Um, antibiotics are an interesting thing that I, I want to talk about again later, because even though they are designed to Prevent and treat infections. Sometimes they actually cause infections, right. and a lot of people don't. They don't understand, understand that. that, right? Um, so we, we prep the patient for the surgery. The day that they come in for the surgery, frequently, we will shave the patient's uh, operative site. So if we're operating on your colon, we'll probably shave your abdomen. Part of the reason for that is there's also bacteria on your skin, and we don't want that skin bacteria to get into the into the operative site. Patient sees the anesthesiologist, sees uh, the surgeon again, sees the perioperative nursing staff. Will answer a whole bunch of questions, all over again. I completely understand that it that the patient probably feels that we are being redundant and silly and wasting their time, and that we don't have. They just our want acts to get together. it done. Right. They just want to get right. it done. Um and. And the reason we ca- we keep asking these questions is part of this high reliability culture. Uh, it's amazing how you can have a conversation with someone, ask a bunch of questions, get a bunch of answers. Five minutes later, someone else can ask them the exact same questions and get different answers. Mm-hmm. And it's not like anybody's trying to hide anything, but the first conversation sort of triggers off some memories that you now bring up to the second uh, the, the second uh, questioner. Right. Um, and we've discovered people that. Uh, had allergies that they they've told five or six people in a row. No, I don't have any. And then all of a sudden, they remember something from you know from 15 years ago. Um, and then the patient goes to the operating room, or the room.
0: wife remembers and tells them, "You didn't tell them this."
1: U- usually, the wife remembers. <laughs> that is that is absolutely <laughs> that true. is
0: definitely true.
1: Yep. Um, and then we go to the operating room and we you know magically do the surgery. Uh, patients frequently get antibiotics before the surgery. If the surgery lasts long enough, they will get another dose of the antibiotic because your body metabolizes it over time. Um, Most of the surgeries these days are uh, either laparoscopic or robotic, the the minimally invasive kind of stuff. Um, When we're done, we have to control your pain somehow. Pain control is not one of those things where we're just trying to be nice so that you have a better experience. The, The pain from a surgery can be pretty bad. And if it's bad enough where it's interfering with you walking around or breathing properly, uh, we're setting ourselves up for a whole new category of problems. So the better we can control your pain, the better off you are going to be. Um, In the past, the best pain control techniques we had were narcotic medications. Mm -hmm. They work very, very well. But they also have lots of side effects mm-hmm. some people get constipated from them you can imagine getting constipated after a, an intestinal, intestinal surgery, surgery is a bad thing um, they can make you nauseous mm-hmm. you can imagine that throwing up after a surgery just is not only a miserable experience but you can you can literally damage the surgery site. Absolutely,
0: because you're forcing. Because you're, you're stressing, forcing. stressing the right. area.
1: You can rip the sutures open. You can end up back in the operating room.
0: Some patients mm-hmm. just don't do well on them.
1: Some patients just, they just don't, just don't, do, don't well do well on them. They don't right. tolerate them well. Exactly.
0: A smaller person
1: uh, has yes. a lower tolerance. Yep. Yes, and some people are just, just sensitive. Right. Um, so, in the last couple of years, we've actually come up with some uh, very impressive non narcotic pain control techniques. And when we put everything together the right way, um, the last I'm gonna say dozen colon patients that, that I've had, we've done their surgeries robotically. We've given them the intravenous equivalent of Tylenol, believe it or not. And because we're giving it intravenously and and quite literally bypassing the liver, which, right. oh, which would which sort of good. have to get involved if you're right. taking it by a pill. Right. We can give you approximately 10 times the the dose of what you would take by a pill.
0: Because it's dangerous to go through the liver with a high dose of exactly. the Tylenol. Exactly. So it bypasses it.
1: Bypasses it completely.
0: Just so the audience, you know, I'm sure that's what they were thinking. Yes,
1: yep. Um, and we also have a, a relatively new medication on the market that is a very long acting local anesthetic. So picture going to the dentist and getting the, you know, the Novocaine injection. Right. Um, picture that injection lasting for two or three days. So now, after the surgery, you have this injection in the operating room while you're asleep. You have a few doses of this intravenous Tylenol. Two days later, my colon patients go home. Wow! When they go home, they sit around with an ice pack. I don't want them sitting around. They walk Walk around around. with an ice pack. Get things moving. I think get get that peristalsis moving. Um, Ice pack, their own Tylenol. Uh, We usually give them a prescription for something stronger, you know, just in case. Um, This is compared to the traditional laparoscopic surgery where they still may be in the hospital for four or five days Mm. and comparing that to the traditional open surgery where most people were in the hospital for a week. Now, it sounds nice to get home and back into your own bed, um, but hospitals are difficult places. Mm. Think about what a hospital is. We create a building and we take all the sickest people in the city and we put them in one place. And then we wonder why people get sick in the hospitals. You can literally catch things from the other patients and I hate to admit this but you can catch things from the staff that have carried it over from another Another patient. patient. So we have all kinds of precautions in place to try to decrease the chances of that ever happening. But
0: getting the patient out of the hospital, a surgical patient out of the hospital as quickly as they can is the best for the patient
1: all the way around. It is absolutely the best for the patient. Um, I Follow that idea so strongly that I tell my patients for the first two or three days you're going to be sitting there and nothing's going to happen, and then it's going to feel like I'm throwing you out, and that is exactly my intention.
0: Right to get you out of the hospital. I'm going to dial it back just to... Mm -hmm to the beginning of this conversation regarding the process Mm -hmm. with the surgical patient. There's something that you brought to my attention that I did not realize that we did. Mm -hmm. And I went back to my old days on the floors when we used to uh, prep our patients before they went to surgery and Mm -hmm. and cleanse the area. But now we're actually instructing the patient to do a three-day cleanse. Is it a three-prep cleanse of the surgical site? Yes. Let me explain that a little bit. Sure.
1: Sure. when you're talking about an, an infection, uh, as time goes by, it's easy to focus on different techniques to get rid of it. And when you look at the uh, the data about how effective each one of those techniques can be, you, you quickly realize that there's a limit to how, how much of an improvement we can get. But if we can use three, four, five, ten different techniques all at the same time, the, the effectiveness starts adding up very, very quickly. So if we're talking about skin bacteria and possibly infecting the wound, you can imagine that if I prep your skin with with a solution once, I'll, I'll get rid of a certain amount of bacteria. If I can do that skin prep five times, I'll get rid of a lot more bacteria. And we've learned from experience that if we clean you five times in a row just before the operating room, it's nowhere near as effective as if we somehow clean you five times over a few days. So one of the things that uh, we've been doing, honestly, throughout the whole state um, is rolling out something called an ERAS protocol. Okay. ERAS stands for Enhanced Recovery After Surgery. Um, almost all the hospitals that are in the state are part of a collaborative that's using this this ERAS protocol. Um, and part of that is this this cleansing that you're talking about. So when patients get prepped for surgery, they are given a packet to take home with wipes, with the instructions of, on this day you clean yourself, on this day you clean yourself, on this day you clean yourself. It's basically like a big handy wipe. Um, and then in the hospital we do it all over again. And we have we have seen dramatic decreases in, in our infection rates from that alone.
0: How long has that been in place?
1: Um, St. Mary's, uh, at that level of intensity, about six months.
0: So this is these are all parts of the process for us to get to a lower infection rate which is so important to us. When we look at what's happening within the operating room itself and we look about high reliability, once you have the patient in the room and the patient's under anesthesia, what are some are there some other measures that are taken right within that room that high reliability has impacted?
1: Yes, that that is an excellent question, um, and that's and one of those. And we ask excellent question, too. <laughs> I've noticed that. So that that's one of those things that we we do uh, while the patient is in the room, sometimes with the patient awake, so that they can take part in it. Sometimes after the patient's asleep, because the conversation sometimes needs to be different. And and one of the important things that we do is a preoperative checklist. Um, we honestly borrowed this from the aviation industry. Hmm. Before a plane takes off, the pilots need to check certain things out on the plane. Um, This is in addition to the checking that the engineers may have already done. So when a patient comes in the room, they're going to get asked again a whole series of questions that they were asked in the preoperative area. And now there's a few extra questions that we add on top of it. We're making sure it's the right patient. We're making sure it's the right surgery, the right procedure. We're making sure it's the right side left side right side um, at st mary's before a patient comes in the operating room if if the surgery is on one side or the other uh, the surgeon sees the patient preoperatively and literally draws on the patient where, we're, where we're going to be operating um, we talk about any allergies we make sure that if medications were supposed to be given the right medication was given at the right time uh, we discuss what the plan is going to be We discuss any special equipment that we uh, may need. And we discuss any potential problems that anyone has uh, identified along the way. And at least as important, and and I will argue even more important than going through that checklist, um, is something that we call stopping the line. So if at any point along the course of a procedure, or actually the patient's whole stay in the hospital. If anyone identifies something that is serious enough where uh, literally everybody needs to stop what they're doing and pay attention to what what has been brought up here, um, we can literally stand in the operating room and say, all right, everybody stop the line and everything stops. So if we are asking about an antibiotic beforehand and the person who was supposed to give the antibiotic lets us know that it wasn't given, we stop the line, nothing else happens until that antibiotic is given. If there's a question that comes up during the procedure and uh, it's important enough, we can, we can put everything on hold and, and pause until we get that question answered. And
0: all the team within that room is empowered through high reliability to make that judgment and stop the line. You could have your OR tech, a nurse, where you think they may be more intimidated by the surgeon, but they are not. They're empowered by the high reliability training they've had yes, to they be are. able to, what we say, arc it up. Maybe you yes. want to talk about that. Sure. Arc it
1: up. Um, the the first thing I want to address is that the empowerment, mm-hmm. we take this so seriously that a brand new medical student is actually allowed to say, stop the line. And there have been times where they have picked up on things that other people haven't simply because they're so fresh. They're, they're so fresh. It's mm-hmm. almost like... Um, the emperor's not wearing any clothes, kind of thing, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, so that's that. That's how serious that is for us. So the idea about arcing things up is you can imagine that if someone brings up an issue and wants to stop the line, and someone else disagrees with that, there there may be some friction. Part of the high reliability culture is that anyone at any time has the ability and actually has the responsibility. It's not it's not an ability. It's a responsibility to arc it up to the next person in line. So you need to go to that other person's supervisor. And if that person helps out, great. If that person doesn't help out, you need to arc it up even further. You're not trying to do this to get to a point where someone agrees with you. You need to arc it up until you get to a point where the the answer and the solution ends up being the right thing that everyone agrees upon. Uh, and very frequently as you discuss the situation with several people in a row, more data comes out, or you, you sort of rephrase the problem or the question, and little light bulbs go off over people's heads, and they have a totally different appreciation the situation,
0: I think what I've been so impressed with with the high reliability and the initial training I have, and now that I've partaken the meeting, which I do want to talk about, I feel like I feel more part of the culture, and and it's interesting to me, and it's amazing to me to watch all staff members talk in the same type of lingo. You know, where I need I need to ask a clarifying question. That's mm-hmm. a big one, which is so important because that makes the other person understand that the information they've gotten is really not clear to the person receiving it, and they really need clarification. And I think it's so important for us to all live within this culture. The surgeons that are part of St. Mary's Hospital, the referring physicians that are surgeons, not just the Franklin Medical Group, Mm -hmm. they've all been trained on high reliability. They've all been part of it.
1: Yes. In order to be part of the staff, uh, we, we did pass a rule that after a certain point, everyone needed training.
0: They needed to have the hybrid. I know that it's definitely a long process to yes. sit through, but it is so interesting. And refresher courses are always great. Yes. But I think once you become part of that culture and you're speaking the language, you can't help but live it. Correct. Live it every day. Right. So the measures that we've taken in the OR now, the patient is done with surgery, and they're in the recovery room. Are there any procedures or anything we've changed in our recovery room that helps us with that infection prep?
1: We definitely have. Uh, so, again, back to the, uh, the pain control. That uh, is typically in, in the realm of the recovery room and, and the floors afterwards. Uh, again, we try to stay away from narcotics. Mm-hmm. We really strive to reach a balance between the patient being comfortable and not being so comfortable that they're asleep and not you know, sort of breathing properly right. on their own, um, very frequently people will continue to have an oxygen mask on, mm. even if their monitor shows that there's almost no good reason for it. Uh, and the reason that we do that is we've learned over time that the, the extra oxygen above and beyond what the monitor says you need, sits in your tissues and if that oxygen is sitting in your tissues for a longer period of time it actually helps destroy the bacteria that might have survived in the wound after everything else that we've done really so there are patients in the uh, recovery room who will be on an oxygen mask look absolutely fine that oxygen mask is now an anti-infection tool that we use Um, when the patients get to the floor traditionally they were they were told, no, you, you had a big surgery, you need to rest, stay in bed for a few days. And people are just not built to stay in bed for a few days. Our lungs don't work the way they're supposed to. Our kidneys don't work the way they're supposed to. Our intestines, our muscles. So now, even after a large abdominal surgery, part of the job of the, the, of the staff is to get the patients up and walking around and, and breathing deeply the night of the surgery.
0: That's so important for patients to understand because I think they think, like you said, we're throwing them out of bed.
1: Yes, and that's what But it's really
0: to get them moving. Yes. It's really to get them moving and to get all the systems working again because the more the systems work, the quicker you're going to heal. Yes. And and move everything along. I do um, want to also address... Not only the fact that we do this at St. Mary's Hospital, but this is happening at our Naugatuck Valley Surgical Center. They follow the same processes that happen right within the St. Mary's OR. They've all been through the same training.
1: Yes, and it's... um I can see how it sounds complicated that it's Naugatuck Valley Surgery Center and and St. Mary's Hospital. The reality is that it is a division of St. Mary's Hospital. It's the same staff, the same training, the same nurses, the same doctors, the same equipment, the same everything.
0: Incredible team. We've actually started doing more and more there. Because yes. we needed to expand what we were able to do at the hospital. I know you're a big proponent of that. There's so many things that we can do at the surgery Center that are more same-day type of surgeries. Yes. That can be done there and provides us with the opportunity to do more cases at the hospital. Now, we have two robots.
1: We have two robots.
0: Which are their names?
1: Uh, Sergio and Zena.
0: Zena. Yeah, yes. I couldn't
1: remember the second one. Yep.
0: So, Sergio and Zena uh, are very busy. Yes. all day long we yes. keep them working yes. the movement to robotic surgery definitely has reduced our infection rate more and more has. yes so anything that was done open then moved lap- laparoscopically then now to robotic we will see our rates decrease and, and because we're using more robotics would you say what is our ratio between what how much robotic cases we're doing now versus two years ago
1: um, I think it depends on the on the case that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, two years ago, maybe 50% of the prostates were done robotically. Now almost all of them are. Um, maybe 70% of hysterectomies were done robotically. Now almost all of them are. Um, almost all of the colon surgery uh, we do robotically. Uh, gallbladder surgery, uh, the, the volume has increased. But very frequently, a gallbladder could be an emergency, Right. and if the you know the robot's are already being used for something else, and you now need to have an emergency surgery, you just sort of need to get it done. You shouldn't have to wait until somebody's done with the
0: with the robot with the robot. Will they be right. able to get it done now? Laparoscopically, all of our surgeons I know are all trained laparoscopically and robotically. I know that there's a few surgeons here in the Greater Waterbury community have gone from open to laparoscopic and now do robotics. So they've seen all full full course, but as we get more and more younger surgeons that join us, yes. do they ever have the opportunity to do the open, or are you seeing more and more of the younger surgeons coming out, really started out with laparoscopic and robotic?
1: Um, that That's a really good question. The, the residents that are coming out of their training now have done so much laparoscopic surgery, and we've gotten so good at doing it that way, that their experience in open surgery has really diminished. There's sort of like a, a tongue-in-cheek movement in the surgical education world mm. where we wanna create surgical fellowships where people just do old-fashioned open surgery. Really? Because it's, it's a lost art, yeah. Um, I don't think it'll ever take off, but but it's gotten to that point.
0: The infection rate, I'm sure, for traditional open surgery is much much more because you have a larger site, much a larger healing process. Yes. And you know the movement to laparoscopic was huge, and I think it was really difficult for the surgeons who traditionally did the open because you were working in such a small area. Mm-hmm. But moving robotically, it's even smaller of an area, but you can see so much more. Yes. I want to talk about our high reliability meeting that we do every day and what we discuss and some of the things we bring up. We've just been told we can go right till 7 o'clock, which is really good. So we'll take a little bit break. Again, we're talking to Dr. Philip Corvo, who's chairman of our Stanley Dudrick Department of Surgery at St. Mary's, and we will be back in a few minutes. Robin Sills, St. Mary's Hospital. Welcome back. Welcome back to Medically Speaking, our first show of the new year, 2016. Again, I want to wish everyone a happy new year. We are here tonight with Dr. Philip Corvo, who is the chairman of our Dr. Stanley Dudrick um, Department of Surgery at St. Mary's Hospital. Dr. Corvo, join me tonight. Thank you so much on this cold winter night for coming out.
1: Thank you again for having me here. Are
0: you kidding me. You're a wealth of, of knowledge for us. And we really wanted to be transparent tonight. We really wanted to talk about what we're doing as a hospital for uh, quality and patient safety. And we were addressing a couple of articles that were out recently talking about infection rates in the state of Connecticut. But reminding everyone that those that data is older data um, and what we've done over the past um, two years um, to help our infection rates and, and how they have gone down. And we're very proud proud and very excited and very happy to share that information tonight Before we uh, move on to the patient safety and flow meeting that I really want to talk about, because I think it's important for people to really understand what we do as a hospital every single day, I wanted to, I I was driving on the highway, and I wanted to ask you about a billboard I saw that I only know a little bit about. Mm -hmm. It's called the Robotic Institute at St. Mary's Hospital. That's pretty neat. So maybe we want to let the audience know a little bit more about the Robotic Institute.
1: Sure. Um, We... Just formed the Robotic Surgery Institute of New England, and obviously it is it is based at St. Mary's. Uh, you know, if if you went back uh, 10 years, almost nobody had a robot. So when you had a robot, you were now the, the cool kid in town, and you were doing, <laughs> you know, you were doing procedures that other people couldn't do before. Um, and over time, more and more hospitals realized how how good the robot can be and how much it can help their patients, and it just sort of makes sense that more and more places had robots. So now you have different hospitals that are competing for the same patients, and, and pretty much like everyone has a robot these days. Um, and it's easy to talk about the robot, but the real difference between one hospital and another is the team that works the robot. The robot, honestly, is nothing more than a very big piece of equipment that, that helps us do things. But, but that's all it is, is, a piece of equipment. Without the proper team... Um, and I don't want the surgeons to get mad at me here, but without the proper team, mostly the nurses that are uh, helping uh, in the operating room with the robot. Um, and it, our it, OR techs, just, our OR technologists, that's, yes, the, I, I'm, I'm including them together, the nurses <laughs> and the techs. Um, it, it's just, again, it's just another piece of equipment. So in order to separate ourselves from everyone else, um, we've taken advantage of and have bragged about the, the really good things that we have, we have one of the best teams around, um, and I can—I feel like I can say that because I'm—I'm I'm a proctor. Um, many of our surgeons are instructors, so we go to other hospitals to teach other surgeons how to use the robot. So, if I've gone to uh, over a dozen hospitals in a dozen states and have watched other programs, when I come back, I—I I know how good we are, and we—we we are that good. We also have a residency training program and we teach our residents how to use the robot. That's important because if you're going to teach somebody how to do something, you really need to make sure that you know what you're doing. Automatically elevates us uh, you know, a level above um, another hospital that just may have a robot and, and just sort of uses it because they, they need to. Other surgeons come to us to learn our techniques. So when you put that all together, we have a, a synergy going that a lot of other places just can't match. So we decided to put a name on it, and that's the Robotic Surgery Institute of New England. That's great. That's the billboard. I'm
0: so proud. I'm so proud to have that. I'm so proud to be part of it. I. In a testament to what you're saying, um, one of our newest surgeons who, who just recently joined us, Dr. Asemwede, who is from, um, I believe he's from Cleveland area. Yes. He's up from Ohio. Mm-hmm. He researched different hospitals to go to, and he chose us because of our robotic program. And I think that says a lot. I mean, it really does. It does. Yes. It does a lot. And I, I'm so proud of that, to, that we're attracting these young surgeons yes. to come to St. Mary's Hospital because of that program. Yes. You had a little smile because I said his name quite well this y- time.
1: You said his name perfectly and, and I was I smirking. Say,
0: I, I know because I get in trouble for that. No. <laughs> but I do want to end our program in talking about our high reliability meeting that we do every day at every 9, day. O'clock nine o'clock on the dot. On the dot. Starting with prayer. Yes. With a beautiful prayer yes. that Sister Dolores Del- has for us in this new year. But it's a meeting that encompasses everyone in the hospital that represents a particular department. Our nursing staff, our physicians, our residents. That It's incredible watching the residents and mm-hmm. they're reporting out every day. Our... Um, radiology department, our lab, mm-hmm. myself as physician liaison talking yes. about making sure that my physicians in the community, their concerns are represented in that meeting. Our um, facilities team, our dietary, I mean I know I'm missing a ton, but right. it's, it's our incredible. Our transporters, transporters, our engineers. Security. Right. Secu-
1: yes, everyone.
0: Everyone. Our chief medical officer, chief of staff is in there. Um, our, our COO is in there. Mm-hmm. Our chief nursing officer who runs yes. the meeting, James Tucker. It's an incredible meeting. So let's talk about why we have that meeting and what actually happens
1: Uh, the the main reason that we have the meeting is because the patient experience in the hospital is about the patient and somehow all of these people affect the patient experience Mm. so we all need to make sure that we've got the same message we all need to make sure that we are holding each other accountable Um, and it's amazing how if someone brings up a concern Mm. that whoever would End up owning that concern is now held accountable for it, right. and how quickly those problems get fixed. You know, in the past, I can imagine that uh, three or four different nursing floors might have the same small issue, but if they don't share it with each other, that little issue, a, never gets fixed, and b can bloom into something a lot bigger. Mm-hmm. During this meeting, when we go around and everyone has their their the time report. of talking, if we have Uh, You know, three different nurse managers from three different floors all saying the same thing. We realize that we've got, you know, an issue on our hands, and it usually gets fixed by the next day. There's
0: accountability.
1: There's a huge amount of accountability.
0: When they come back the next day, you, someone owns it. Before, If they say the, the issue, someone in that room owns it, and we ensure yes. that someone owns it. Or there's going to be what we call a huddle of a team of people to own whatever that problem is. Yes. And then the next day, there's a report on that problem. And I just yes. think that's incredible. And the residents come in, and if they have an issue or a problem, it is definitely the space and the environment to... Mm-hmm. Let people know what that is and what is the issue, what's the problem, who will own it, I will get back to you. And I, I just think that's it's the highest level of accountability we can have as an organization. And one of the biggest reasons why it's had such an impact on our infection rate, because we are looking at things, especially at the floor level, when the patient goes from the OR to the floor, some of the things we monitor, which the nurses report on, on the catheters mm-hmm. and the, and the um, DVTs. Maybe we mm-hmm. want to talk about that.
1: Sure, um, you you can imagine that if you're going to a hospital, you you don't want to catch anything while you're there. Uh, in the past, we would leave a catheter, it's called a Foley catheter, uh, in a patient's bladder after a surgery, mostly for a comfort reason. This way, so you don't. True. This way, you don't have to have get to get up, up, and, up to go and to go and the go bathroom. Right. right. Um, but the reality is, you now have a foreign body in a place in your body. That really shouldn't be there, and as soon as you don't need it, it should come out, and it needs to come out, and it does come out because it's a source of infection. It it is a possible source of infection, yes. So taking those catheters out um, as soon as practical, almost always by the next morning of surgery, when a patient is capable of getting up and going to the bathroom themselves, Um, when you take those catheters out, infection rates plummet.
0: They go down, and we talk about. DVTs or deep vein thrombosis and it, and we have patients that you know are immobile mm-hmm. and either due to surgery or due to another illness and the nurses report on out on that and what they say DV, DVT um, prophylaxis is adequate yes let's explain what that means so the nurses are actually reporting in that meeting every day that they've checked every single patient for every patient's been checked for a DVT protocol yes.
1: Yes. Um, A DVT is a large blood clot that forms in your legs. The worst case scenario with it is that it breaks loose and goes to your heart and your lungs, and sometimes those can be fatal. So preventing someone from getting this DVT in the first place is incredibly important. Mm. Patients that are in hospitals are at a high risk for these, because usually in a hospital you are laying in a bed, Mm -hmm. and you don't have the... um, the, the pumping mechanism of your calf while you're walking around to keep the blood circulating. Right. So if the blood stays there for too long, it starts to clot and it's clotting in the wrong spot. So making sure that patients have these uh, pneumatic massage stockings, although they're they're a lot bigger than a regular stocking is, um, to literally squeeze the leg in, mm-hmm. a, in a cyclic kind of fashion to keep the blood flowing. Um, and then there's certain medications that we can give to people that are, that are blood thinners to prevent these clots.
0: We used to use, I was on orthopedics for many, many years, and we used to use the um, machines, Mm-hmm. with the wraps around the legs. Mm-hmm. Like, do we still we still utilize those? I've been on the floor a while out there, so right. just seeing what we still have. But yep. we still utilize we, the machines. We, they're big and bulky. It's they the were big the and bed. bulky. Now they're, now
1: they're smaller. smaller. They're
0: smaller now? I should get on the now, floors yeah, and check out. Now they're that smaller
1: and, and funner. And there's probably an app to control them
0: <laughs> So that meeting is definitely a place uh, every day, same report. It's usually mm-hmm. a half an hour, but mm-hmm. we get a lot addressed and a lot done. And I just wanted to make sure that the audience knew. I know, I can't believe we're almost at the end of the program. I wanted to make sure that our audience our community knew what we're doing as a hospital to work with every department within the hospital to ensure the highest level of quality patient safety for our patients and for our entire community and in working on the infection rate um, within our OR and at our surgery center has done incredible measures and we will be happy to see what the report is moving forward so thank you thank you so much for being so transparent tonight (laughs) and educating our community dr corvo and we will be bringing you back because i want to talk more about things that are coming our way
1: We'll come back as many times as, as you want. As
0: many times? All right. Well, we'll never get to having you, so we'd love to have you. So I want to thank everyone for joining us. I want to give you um, a blueprint as to what's going to happen with the next couple of shows. So we do have a show this coming Friday at 9.30 in the Barbara Davids slot. It is our Medically Speaking in the morning. And I'll, I will have with me Dr. Kathleen Burleson. She is a primary care physician with the Franklin Medical Group. She will be here um, talking with me about cold versus flu. We're calling it achoo or the flu. And she's going to be talking to some of the myths um, that surround the common cold as well as how to tell the difference between a cold and a flu and when you maybe need to have some different care. So we're excited to have her with us at 930 Friday morning right here on WATR. And then we will be having another Wednesday show next week because we did two back to back. So we will be back here on the 20th and I will have with us the chief now, Our chief. Dr.
1: Ritchie, Chief of, staff, yes. Chief
0: of Staff, Dr. Aziz Ritchie, who is a longtime surgeon here in the Greater Waterbury area. Dr. Ritchie is joining me, and we're going to be talking about our bariatric program. We're pretty excited about that program. We're going to be talking about the longevity of that program, our accreditation, our team that makes that program so special, and also our wellness program that goes along with our bariatric program, and we do have quite a few surgeons that are performing the bariatric procedure here in the Greater Waterbury with very much success in a long period of time. So I want to invite you and welcome you to join us for those two programs. So I will be back um, this coming Friday again at 930. And again, thank you for joining us. St. Mary's Hospital, exceptional care, every patient, every day. Have a great night.